it's all about communication. To really rise through this business, you have to be somebody that has a way of understanding people, being able to navigate, being able to read a room, being able to read a person, you know, know when to shut your mouth, know when to open your mouth, put the hours in and put the time in and not have any expectation that you deserve anything. If you're doing that and you're just putting your head down and doing the work and talking to people and being inquisitive and asking questions, that creates a vibe. So here I am in Beverly Hills, California, on the ninth floor of a very nice office building. Um, it houses uh, an organization called Principato Young Entertainment. Peter Principato uh, has been a, a client, uh, as has the organization of, of, of mine for now. I was figuring out, I think our first retreat was in 2009. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, not that period of time. So Peter has been nice enough to join us. As you know, the goal and the mission of the show is to talk about the effect that conversations have on our lives, regardless of the industry you're in. And Peter is really uh, sort of the first one into the water here uh, on Tell Me What to Say about the entertainment business. Um, you can read on his bio and you can read up on his company, but they are, at, to say the least, a significant player uh, in the business. And I'm excited. Thank you for for hanging out with me it's today. It's a pleasure. Thank Thanks. you. So as, as uh, the listener knows, the first question, just as a complete warm-up, whatever the answer is, is, is totally great. And they're always interesting. What did you want to be when you were a little kid, when you grew up? I, I think this is going to surprise you. What? I wanted to be a pediatrician. Whoa. And uh, since I was young, I loved my pediatrician. And he was just somebody that I would always go to and he was entertaining. And of course he gave lollipops, you know. And so from ever since I can remember, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a pediatrician. Hmm. And then through high school, I volunteered in hospitals in the Candy Striper program um, for at least four years. Then when I went to college, I went to college for pre-med and I still volunteered in the hospitals and I worked in the science labs and and really dedicated myself to that path and wanted to do that. Um, <clears throat> I was a, a lazy student, you know, where I, if I didn't study, I was very lucky to pull off a B or a B plus in a class. So I felt like that was always good enough, you know. But uh, if I actually did study, because I would sometimes fail things and then have to come and take a makeup test, it would always be you know, at, a, at, a, at one of the higher grades. But I didn't love, I didn't have the discipline or the, um, the patience for studying. Mm. And when you are going to be a doctor, not only after four years of uh, a program at, at, at university, it's seven years beyond that, four years of medical school, two years of an internship, one year of residency, and... And I just was looking at that that future and thinking, um, I don't know if I have that in me, you know, to, to truly have that discipline that it takes to to study, you know. And in my junior year of college, uh, I was taking a a class where you had to keep fruit flies alive in a test tube. It was a genetics class, and to keep a fruit fly alive, it's 
dropping some sugar water into a test tube and I killed all my fruit flies. <laughs> and I felt like that was the defining moment of uh, I'm not going to be a doctor because if I can't keep a fruit fly alive, you know. I also am such, you know, something that I think makes me good at what I do at my job now. I'm very empathetic. I'm an empath, you know. And I would just, if some, if I was in the hospital and somebody was telling me about an accident of breaking their arm, you, you know, I literally, you're seeing this right now. My arm would start to curl with pain, you know. And if somebody was having an operation on their liver or something, I would like actually physically feel the pain. And I felt like that might not be the best path, path right, to right. go into. So what when you when you when you saw the dead fruit flies came yeah. to the epiphany that perhaps medicine was not your path. Yeah. Get us obviously beyond that sad story and on to where you're where you shifted to it obvious wasn't, It wasn't success. as sad a story for me because I I was doing so much in college at the time like I sometimes feel like um college isn't necessarily the place to learn and pursue the path that you think you're supposed to be on. It's sometimes the experience and the path of learning what you're not supposed to be doing as much as what you're supposed to be doing. And that's where the education really comes in of just trying to figure out, oh, I'm not supposed to do that, you know, I think is as, as an important experience as doing it. So it wasn't a sad experience for me other than feeling like I've just volunteered seven years of my life in hospitals and I love science I love figuring out puzzles and the science aspect of my brain is still you know sort of active because it's just about trial and error and solving problems and like the labs of science were always interesting to me because you were discovering things and figuring it out the people who were most disappointed obviously were my parents you know my both my parents, my father didn't finish college and my mother didn't go to college. And so I was sort of the the great hope of the family of somebody that was going to be a doctor, you know. So um, telling my mother that I wasn't going to go to medical school, I wasn't going to be the doctor that I thought I was going to be, she immediately was, you know, just very disappointed and angry and was yelling at me that she was going to stick her head in the oven because she's so upset and disappointed and sticking the head in the oven in a certain period of time in America was because there were ovens were gas ovens and you would turn on the gas and kill yourself. Basically right. we had an electric oven. <laughs> and so this probably led to my path of how I chose mostly the comedy space to sort of work into. I said to my mother, you are more than welcome to put your head in the oven. The best you're going to do is get a tan. <laughs> and she did not find that funny, but that sort of led me to my true passion, you know, and and the things that I was working on of, I was just fascinated. I was such a student of film and television and comedy and my father who put away all things childish when I was born like he dropped out of college because I think I was a surprise to my parents and went to work right away to support the family but he had all these comedy albums he like hid in a closet that I found when I was a kid and it was like Bob Newhart and Lily Tomlin and the Smothers Brothers and Richard Pryor and all of these things that I would just incessantly listen to you know and my grandparents lived in our home and, and 
it was just like seven of us in a little Cape Cod, you know, house on Long Island. And, and my grandfather was a great student of loving watching television and film. He was the one that would take me to the movies as a kid. You know, my parents never really took me to the movies. My grandfather always would. And I would sit up in his, you know, little apartment in our house and just watch TV with him, like the Carol Burnett show and the Smothers Brothers show and, you know, all of the sort of television of the 70s and, and things like that. So as I was in college, the path just started because I was also – president of the student body. I was a bartender in the, you know, they still had bars on campuses then, the Rathskeller, you know. I was a bartender. I was um, also on the student activities board, and I ran and managed the game room, you know, to do things. But I was in charge of budgets um, for student activities and bringing shows and things. So I was bringing concerts to the campus. I was doing fashion shows. I was doing talent shows, things along those lines. So these were all things that were interesting to me. And then that started to formulate like, oh, I was, because I was president of the student body and, you know, I was also doing all this work on student activities there was a couple of paths I could take. I thought maybe politics. You know, I was mm. I was a people person. I was good with people. I thought maybe I would go into politics. I was in the political system of the university. And, you know, and then I was also doing all this entertainment-related stuff. So the first path was let me pursue politics, you know. And I had no idea how to get into politics. I didn't know what it was. My father had some strange connection uh, working, you know, so my first job, I went to work for the attorney general of the state of New York. You know, my father worked, was the highest ranking civilian member of the New York City police force. You know, he ran the motor transport division. He ran their fleet services. So all the cars um, that were part of the New York City police, all the transportation, all of that stuff, my father was in charge of, you know, started as a mechanic and worked his way up through the police force but he was not he wasn't a cop himself he was a civilian um his f most famous and thing that he was recognized for by the city of new york was he built the first pope mobile when the pope was coming to town so the bulletproof thing and he got a nice citation and you know your dad built my dad my dad was one of the, the people the behind builder. the first right. pope mobile that uh that, that became famous you know um but i i went to work for the attorney general in new york state in their seatbelt coalition. So my job was basically being an advocate for safety belt use. Now this is, you got to remember, this is in the 80s. So it was people weren't wearing their seatbelts. There was, you know, a whole, you know, the click it or ticket or buckle up, it's the law. All of these programs weren't put in place yet. And, you know, so my job was to take um, this half-hour death tape of car accidents and go to companies and corporations in New York City and play this death tape in an, in a uh, um, to educate these people on why they should be using seatbelts and why the law is important and so you had that. a you had a, a a presentation that accompanied, or were you simply? I simply was just taking his tape and going to these fluorescent lit conference rooms where the lights were buzzing right. and putting in this death tape. So, so, so when? Do, I mean, there's such a, a a mishmash of experiences that now make, of course, complete sense, yeah. even for me who only somewhat knows you. Um, but 
Can you think and describe, as we say, the conversations on, on this show? Mm -hmm. The conversation, though, that turned it into moving toward where you are now, right? The, the, I know you were in New York yeah. um, and, and working in some various entertainment yeah. type of things. But can you really highlight a, a, a time that sticks in your head that really shifted it? Um, I'm sorry, my phone's ringing. That's okay. <laughs> That's like, That's the, we, it's buzzing, it and is, I knew I, before I sat down, I said my phone's. The phone ring will during. buzz. Well, that shows we're really I you're know. really working. I know. So, so what I need you to do is just re-ask me that question. Sure, because the phone's <laughs> buzzing. That works. That works fine, and he's amazing on editing yeah. if we have to. Pause. What was the? <laughs> what was the? Along the lines of doing all of that work, showing the the death. Yeah. Uh, all the rest. What was, can you think of the conversation mm -hmm. that began to turn you toward, specifically toward the entertainment industry mm -hmm. as, a, as a professional? Well, I think it was probably an internal conversation first, you know, a conversation with myself. Yeah. You know, those conversations are almost as important, if not more important, than right. the actual physical conversations right. you might have with other human beings. It was, it was that conversation of... I was sitting in this place, and it was more of a public relations type of job, you know? And I thought public relations into the politics was the way to go at the time. And, and I was realizing and experiencing, like, this is not what I want to be doing, you know? Like, I didn't love the job. The job was a little depressing, you know? And the people that worked there were lovely, and I always had a great time and met some great people. But it was literally an office on the Whitestone Expressway which is right near the Whitestone Bridge in New York City, and which is just a thoroughfare. It's literally the white, it's an expressway, and it's a little building that the automobile club was housed in. And then this office was basically two women, me, and maybe one other person, and that was it. And the conversation just started like, oh, this, I, this, I, this isn't an inspiring environment, you know, and, and it was a job, you know, and it was a job, a step into something, you know, so the conversation internal, as well as the conversation with some of the people who work there and some of my friends, you know, that, that were off to medical school, that were off to business school, that were off to law school, and you know, and I was making I think twelve or thirteen thousand dollars a year at this PR job. Um, and I think the conversations just first were about this is okay. This is not what I wanted to do, you know. So I did I did this for about six months. I always give it wasn't like an immediate thing. It took six months to realize like, okay, I need to step up from this. Now I've taken this job like. And talking to some of my old professors at the university and going to the library at the university because I was still living at home. And my school I went to was four blocks away from my house, basically. And, and so um, it was just that, in, in that, that, that beginning inner dialogue of like, my, my parents always did say something to me growing up, which parents all say, to, you know, it's the thing of like, you can be anything you want to be if you set your mind to it, you know? One of those things, which is just out of the handbook of how to be a parent, you know? And and my father is a, um, is a very smart man that, that gives very practical advice, you know? So it's always it's always advice like work hard, do the work, 
If there's a battleship sticking out of your ass and somebody asks you about that battleship, your only response is, what battleship? Things along the lines of very just practical life advice of growing up and, and you know, going into the workforce. And, and you know, so f and my father worked really hard. You know, like he, I, I, I think he made, you know, God bless him, $65,000 a year and owed money to nobody except maybe had a little mortgage on the house and had a family of seven basically in a small house in, on Long Island. And, and he was... At the time, I didn't know how to appreciate that, you know, but I would have these conversations with him of, I just don't know if this is what I want to be doing. And, you know, of course, his advice is like, you need to stick with it and, you know, just work hard and put your nose down and, you know, and and other people were like, opportunity will present itself and, you know. And so the inner dialogue was, I wasn't happy. This is not what I wanted to do. I wanted to elevate. I wanted to be doing something special. So I went to the the, the library and I, I talked to some of the sort of librarians at the university library of like, this is what I'm doing. I'm doing this public relations thing. And they're like, well, maybe you should get a job at a PR firm, you know, in, in Manhattan or try to, you know, work at a top 10 PR firm. And I'm like, okay, that's an idea. Did all this research, sent out resumes and got a job at like the number seven PR firm, uh, you know, a company at the time called KCSNA, Canaan, Corbin, Shupak and Aronow. I can't believe I remember wow. that. Um, public relations. And they did a lot of corporate PR. And um, so, the, and they also did some entertainment PR. They had like the, stuffed animal company Gund, you know, mm -hmm. they had an audio company, Poke Audio. They did a little bit of entertainment PR for some other companies, but mostly it was about, um, it was about corporate PR, you know? And, and so the, that's, I think the first conversations about all this stuff were probably just that inner dialogue, Got it. you know? And what happened finally that through all of that, you got to the PR. I remember the story um, you had told me a while ago, or I read it, uh, about you working with uh, uh, Lorne Michaels. Mm -hmm. uh, two names, Lorne Michaels, John Stewart. Mm -hmm. These are names that would get the attention of mm -hmm. the listener, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, from, from, from PR mm -hmm. and then to them, approximately. <sighs> Well, approximately, yeah. I mean, well, well, there was a whole life between that. Of course. You know, I mean, the, the John Stewart was a part of the life, you know, but there was seven years between the PR to Lorne Michaels, you know. And what happened was the company, so this is around 1988, I think, at this point, the stock market crashed. Um, the company I was working for was going to have to do some layoffs because all of the corporate clients that they had were in some trouble. So they, you know, the, basically the support staff goes in, in a situation like that. And I was one of the newer sort of employees. I think I was there for a year or something mm -hmm. like that. And so I remember on my birthday in 1988, they told me, you're fired <laughs> or laid me off. And I was horrified absolutely horrified like i i had to go and get you know i had to go for um uh when you get laid off you get paid by the state you know unemployment, unemployment insurance. insurance 
at that time it wasn't done through the mail. You had to go to the unemployment office. You had to be looking for work. And this was a bleak sort of period. You know, I'm a year out of college at this point now. And I'm on the unemployment line already. And I'm getting paid off a salary that was like $14,000 a year. So you only get, I'm still living at home. And I was going to be a doctor. <laughs> and, and, you know... And I was really frustrated and I was taught, you know, my grandfather who had a great deal of influence on my, you know, in me and my life and, you know, was just somebody that always had a, a sensitive ear. Um, like I said, my father was was a practical man and, you know, was sort of like, you know, get over your shit and move on and, you know, and just do what you got to do. And I I wasn't afraid of hard work necessarily. I had... I'd worked myself since I was 12, you know, like I was working in a pizza parlor. I had newspaper routes and then, you know, and then I had four jobs during college, you know, and one of my best friends would always tell me he thought I was lazy and, I'm, and I would think I was lazy, but I'm, I had four jobs, you know, trying to hmm. scrape together anything I wanted because we grew up moderately and, and anything I really wanted, if I wanted a stereo, if I wanted a bike, I had to buy it myself for the mm. most part, you know. Uh, my parents provided what they could, and my father owed money to nobody, so there was never any an overextension of anything, you know. And my father was that practical man of like, you want something, go work for it, you know. And and so at this time on the unemployment line, talking to my grandfather, and who I loved the movies, I loved the t and, he, and he started encouraging me a little bit of. You know, well, maybe you should try to pursue what you're passionate about. What are you passionate about? And I really didn't know anybody in the entertainment industry, but my um, two of my friends, well, one of my friends was going to go to Europe for like a month or three weeks or a month. And I thought, why not? Let me go ba backpack through London and France with my, my college friend. And one of our other college friends was going to come with us. But before we did, I'm like, let me just get out as many resumes into the entertainment industry. The business. The only thing I knew about the entertainment industry was what I would see on television, you know, or Ricky Ricardo was with the William Morris Agency, you know, or things along those lines. So I went to the library, did all my research. Again, again, the scientific side of my brain was research, you know, did all this research on who were the record companies in New York because I was helping a friend of mine DJ, you know, like I was an assistant DJ, which meant I carried the records, you know, I was playing around with music and l I loved singing in bands and things along those lines. And so I always had an attraction to the performing arts. I always had an attraction to the, the, the arts itself. And I certainly had an attraction to the comedic arts, you know? Um, and so I just went and did all this research of, record companies, production companies, um, studios, networks, all of these things. And I discovered talent agencies. I didn't know what a talent agency was except for the fact that Ricky Ricardo was with the William Morris Agency. And I did all this research and I discovered there was training programs at some of these talent agencies in New York City. And I only sent my resume to four talent agencies, but I sent about 120 resumes out to the entertainment industry, but four to talent agencies. And they were uh, the William Morris Agency, uh, ICM, International Creative Management, 
APA, Agency for the Performing Arts, and a smaller agency called Abrams Artists because when I called them and said, do you have a training program? They were like, well, if you're here for two years, you become an agent. I'm like, that sounds great. So I sent these 120 resumes. I went to Europe for three weeks talking to my friends, you know, just trying to figure out, you know, what they were like. One of my friends was into the arts, but he was becoming a teacher and, you know, and my other friend, I didn't, I'm not sure what he wound up doing. We came back and I had basically 117 rejection letters, a big rejection ball that every, you know, you make with uh, all of those letters. And, uh, but I, I had interviews, people that wanted to meet me at three of the talent agencies. It was just weird. I only sent four resumes and I got interviews at three of them. You know, That's pretty good. And it's a pretty good thing and it's weird. It's like, I, and I think it's probably spoke, my resume was about this PR experience. So that's about communication. That's about people being a people person. Then I had this, you know, these the student activities that I did yep. at the university where I was president of the student body, you know, booking the, sh the shows. So the talent agencies somehow felt like, oh, he's at least a candidate to come and maybe be an assistant here. And so I went in for these interviews and I interviewed at ICM and APA and this small company, Abrams Artists, um, not William Morris. And um, I didn't get offered a job at APA. I got offered a position at ICM in the training program. But they, the Writers Guild had just had a strike, so they had a hiring freeze at the company for six months, but they wanted to hire me. And I wasn't sophisticated and savvy enough to be like, oh, let me take that job and go pump gas for six months and come and take the job. And Abrams Artists offered me a job answering their phones, again, for $13,000 a year to, to sort of start there. And I thought, that's a thing, you know? And and so I, I took the job. I took a job, my first job in the entertainment industry, which is now 30 years ago, mm. not that I like to talk about that, um, was uh, was that Abrams artist. Got it. You know. Got it. So come forward um, to here, right? I mean, we, we would, everything, it's so consistent in what you're saying that how this notion of conversation mm -hmm. affected you at so many turns between your relatives and mm -hmm. between your colleagues and between your friends. So you were truly guided and yeah. influenced heavily, which, you know, score one for the premise of the show, right? Um, but, you know, I'm, I met you in, in, in 2009, uh, trying to help you think about uh, leadership, communication, and these sorts of issues. Um, and you were my first real exposure in this kind of work, along with some studio stuff, to the unique world of the business, mm -hmm. capital B, and the town. Mm -hmm. it, is the listener knows what they see. They know what they read. Certainly these days it's on the front pages. But what are the, some of the unique communication challenges that this business faces for one to become successful? Well, I think when you grow up in a business like this, you, the communications, it's all about communication. It's all about the way you present yourself. It's all about the way you interact with the people that are above you. You know, it's, 
it becomes imperative to really rise through this business. You have to be somebody that has a personality, that has an intellect, that has a way of understanding people, you know, um, being able to navigate, being able to read a room, being able to read a person, you know, know when to shut your mouth, know when to open your mouth. Um, and, and also not be afraid to do the work and not be afraid to put the hours in and put the time in and not have any expectation that you deserve anything. And so if you're doing that and you're just putting your head down and doing the work and talking to people and being inquisitive and asking questions and not being afraid of, you know, having an opinion and sharing that opinion in a respectful way, not in an argumentative way, but in a respectful way. And sometimes I think, I think that that's what's done me a great service was a little bit of personality, the ability to connect with people, the ability to look people in the eye and have a conversation with them, the ability to have an opinion, but also know what to, when to listen um, and, and know when to speak. I think that aspect of communication, people don't get right. right. That's where the mistake is. They don't know when to voice their you know, what's on their mind. They don't know when to listen. Listening is as, as important as talking. And if you listen and you pay attention and then you're able to interact and talk to people, that creates a vibe. And it also creates an education and it creates an opportunity of, of people taking a liking to you. Because what you're trying to do when you first get in the business is get noticed. You want to get noticed in a way that people don't find it offensive, people don't find it threatening, but they find it intriguing and they find it um, encouraging, meaning like you have an intelligence to you, you know how to present yourself, you, you can communicate well, you can communicate your thoughts well, and you also can listen and take something in and change and not be so reticent in the way you feel or what your opinion is, but being fluid. You so, know? Yeah. So I want to take the liberty of, of pulling in something you said a few minutes ago to emphasize for if nobody else the listener. Because at the heart of this show is hopefully people learn. Yeah. Hearing what you just said, you know, should be replayed a number of times right. uh, by people. But you said something earlier that when in, com in combination is the lack of it is incredibly hurtful and the combination of it can be incredibly powerful. And that's the story of the person telling you about their broken arm yeah. and your arm seizing up as they were telling yes. you the empath, uh, the, the empathy for the other person somehow being able to reflect to somewhat feel and to stay productive, yeah. not to be dis disabled by it. Yeah. Uh, is, is something I know that the best of the people in your business are good at, yeah. uh, great at. And that's a very, very powerful combination in every kind of work. Well, I, you know, I think between therapy, between the help that you provided us as an organization and me, myself, as, um, as a leader in the organization, in the fact of things that you taught us of looking in the mirror, you know, taking responsibility, I... I I learned this later, probably only five years ago. So I've been in the business 30 years. So it took me 25 years to learn what I'm about to say. And I try, like, I try 
to get everybody here who works for me and with me and who helps me run the organization to understand this concept of what you just said. It's that empathetic understanding without... And that's really being able to put yourself in the person opposite you's shoes and truly see the point of view from their perspective, not mm. your perspective. I call that the 360 effect because most people in, in the communication arts, you know, go 90%, which is about me. How does it affect me? Me, 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 me. <laughs> that's the 90, the 90 degree angle. The 180 is, okay, it's still me, but I, I want to hear you. What's going on? What's happening with you? And I'll listen to it. The 270 is, tell me what's going on, but you're still seeing it from your perspective. So you're listening. You're getting better. You're listening, but you're still seeing it through your lens. And then the 360 effect is listening and truly being able to put yourself in their shoes so that you can better understand what they're going through. And then you can have a much better dialogue with them, both in a constructive way as well as when it has to be a negative yep. conversation. So what a segue you just gave me to our last question. Uh, 2009. We were in Santa Barbara at uh, a retreat, which you is the first one you invited me to. Uh, and some feedback got given in the room early on the first day. And you turned to the group. Uh, I may get the, the, the tense of it r wrong, but you said, the shit just got real. Mm -hmm. And SGR, shit got real, has followed me. And even when as far, far as shit got real. That, that was... <laughs> That was even better. Yeah. You see, you said it. So, so, w what did you mean by that then? And does that still follow you today? Yeah, absolutely. We were still we were in our adolescence at that time as an organization, and people didn't know how to be honest with each other, be transparent with each other, talk to each other in a way without feeling fear of, of retribution, you know, feeling like if you said anything about something, you were just going to hurt somebody's feelings and it was difficult and you were going to get into a fight. And so we were still in our adolescence, I think, at that as, as an organization. So that retreat was one of the first experiences through the guidance of somebody that was specialized that people were finally starting to tell the truth, to be candid, to be transparent and to say things and talk about things in a way without that fear. There was still, you know, Always but without fear. that fear. So <laughs> that was the shit getting real. Yep. People were getting real for the first time in our sort of history at that yep. point. And now, eight years later, are you as an organization, let alone you as the leader, are you better at it? Or is that struggle? No, I, I it's definitely an ongoing. Thing. It's a, it's always ongoing. You always learn from it. But I think it's gotten better. You know, as we've evolved, as we've gotten more successful. You know, as a leader of an organization, I've I've said this to you a number of times. I have a lot of alphas in this organization, and they all hate authority, all of them. 
They all, they, they rage against authority because they just, you know, they, they are really good at what they do and they, they want to be acknowledged for it. And, um, and they're really special people and, and they have their own way of wanting to do things. But I represent the authority in the organization. So there's always just that little bit of push and pull, mm -hmm. you know. And so, yeah, we've gotten better at it. Like I'm, I'm able to have conversations because of the 360 effect I just talked about mm -hmm. as well as the shit getting real concept that y you helped us sort of discover of being able to sit down and have honest dialogue with people for the most part, most part. you know. Um, you can always improve. We're not perfect. We're also human beings. We're not perfect, you know. And But I think from a standpoint of where we were eight years ago, it's night and day. Yep. Well, that's good to hear. It's good to hear. Peter, thank you. This has... Uh People will read on the website about all how successful you and your company are. And they'll, they'll now, fortunately, based on what you've shared today, they're going to understand what it really took, uh, the advice you received, uh, the, the risks you took uh, to get to not only where you are, but as I can tell, where you're going. Yeah. Um, and it's been a, a real pleasure yeah. sitting with you here today. And, going through it. Well, this was effortless. Thank you. Thank you. I'll <laughs> take that anytime. <laughs>